Hey, thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message today, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We'll begin reading with verse 25. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, begin with verse 25. Today we begin a five-week series entitled, Seriously, Jesus? We're going to be examining some of what I'm calling the outrageous demands of Jesus. Uh, You probably already know, if you've read the Bible at all, the New Testament, you probably already know that Jesus said some things on occasion that a lot of folks could not understand. He said some things we can't understand. And even his own disciples had difficulty understanding what he had to say. There was one point where toward the end of his earthly ministry, he started speaking plainly to them. And the disciples said to him, they said, oh, now we understand what you're saying because you're speaking plainly to us. Implying that earlier, they felt like he wasn't speaking plainly enough. At other times, uh, it wasn't that people didn't understand what he was saying. They did understand what he was saying, at least what he was literally saying. And it hit them so hard and, and so incredible that they turned and walked away from him. Uh, one of the outrageous demands of Jesus is found in Luke 14. Beginning with verse 25, Luke says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Words of Jesus. You know, we come to expect certain things from Jesus, don't we? I mean, we expect that when Jesus acts, when we read in the Gospels about him acting in a certain way, and when we believe he's acting in a certain way today, we believe that that way is going to be, uh, have some common characteristics. We believe that Jesus is going to be loving, that he's going to be compassionate, that he's going to be merciful and forgiving. He is going to be honest. He's going to tell it like it is. But when he tells it like it is, we're not going to feel like we've been blown away with someone's anger, but rather we've been dealt personally and compassionately by someone who loves us. We also expect certain characteristics 
of Jesus. And really the belief about Jesus uh, in terms of our expectation goes something like this. Because Jesus is love and mercy and forgiveness and honesty and kindness, we expect Jesus to be loving, merciful, and forgiving. We do not expect Jesus to speak in ways that appear to condone, well, things like hatred. We uh, put up on our Facebook page this week uh, that we were going to start this series, Seriously Jesus, the Outrageous Demands of Jesus, and Uh, One person in our congregation uh, wrote a response to it saying, I didn't know that Jesus made any outrageous commands. I'm interested in hearing that. I think for the most part, because we don't expect Jesus to make any outrageous commands, we very conveniently ignore the places where he does. A number of books have been written about the hard sayings of Jesus. Sayings that on the surface are so uncharacteristic of the person we have come to know in Jesus that we struggle with them. One writer said this in an article I read recently. He said, as I struggle through the red letters of my study Bible, I see numerous statements from Jesus that perplex me, he said. To be blunt, he says, there are several things I wish he had never said. That's a very honest statement, I think. This passage from Luke chapter 14, you may know, is one of the most debated passages in the New Testament because of what Jesus said. Because he said, in order for you to follow me, you have to hate his word, not mine. You have to hate your mother, father, wife, children, even yourself. You have to hate those. And if you don't hate them, you cannot follow me. That definitely is taken literally what he says. And many people today actually take those statements literally because it's been so ingrained in us that we have to take everything in scripture literally. I personally think that's a mistaken interpretation. Some things are to be taken literally and some things are not. But if we take these literally, then the word hate is the word Jesus used. Some people point out that in every English version of the Bible, the word, the Greek word, which also means hate, is translated hate. And that if this is not what Jesus actually meant, then it makes sense that at least some of these, a good number of these translations, would have softened those words. And yet no reliable translation did soften them. One writer I also read said that when he was a new Christian a few years ago, there was a group on his college campus that made this passage one of the foundations of their Christian group's ministry. And so they convinced thousands of young people to renounce their parents, to renounce their family, to renounce their friends, to cut everybody they knew off and to run off and join this Christian group. He says most people intuitively sensed that this was not what Jesus had in mind, but at the same time they did not know how to respond to what seemed to be a pretty cut and dried understanding of some clear words from Jesus. Still other people do what I think the majority of Christians do today, and that is 
they just dismiss these words as something, well, you know, we can't understand that. God's ways are higher than our ways, and, and we just need to kind of lay those verses aside and kind of move on. Dismiss what is difficult to tackle. We've all done that at some point or other. Statements like this coming from Jesus are part of the reason why some Jewish people don't consider Jesus to be the Messiah. Their argument is like this. If Jesus were really God, then why would he be violating the fifth commandment, which is to honor your father and mother? Why would he ask someone to violate that if he were God? He can't be God, they said. The problem in this text is... is I think pretty clear, there is a crucial tension. And the tension is this. Jesus here in this passage requires every disciple to hate those whom he elsewhere commands to love. That's the tension. That's the problem. We're told that to be a disciple, you must hate your own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. That's in verse 26. Elsewhere, though, in red letters also, we are not even given the luxury of hating our enemies, let alone mom, dad, kids, husband or wife. It was also Jesus who told us that the two most important things we could do is love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, how could that person turn around and tell you that in order to be a disciple, you had to hate your mom and dad? And so really, here's, here's, here is a question I think that needs to be dealt with. How then can Jesus command us to hate those we love and those whom we are elsewhere commanded to love? That's the question that I think is part of the tension of this text. And as far as this message today goes, here's the question that I want to try to answer for us, at least with some answer. When, what did Jesus mean when he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, a, a, such a person cannot be my disciple. What did he mean by that? Especially when he's told us elsewhere to love those very same people and even some folks who we would consider to be worse. Well, part of the answer, I think, has to do with something that linguists call a hyperbole. A hyperbole. In language, a hyperbole is an exaggerated statement or claim that is not meant to be taken literally, but that is thrown out in order to shock people into attention and to point them in a certain direction, because that direction is very important. That's what a hyperbole is. We use hyperboles all the time. A soldier had been deployed for two years. Hadn't seen his wife and kids. Upon returning home, the wife met him at the airport, and she kissed him a thousand times. She really kissed him 15 times, but 15, 1,000, 1,000, 15. How many of you used it? I've told you a million times. I could say that to you all. I've told you a million times. I have a million things to do. I've heard some of you use this. Whenever I was a kid, I had to walk 15 miles to school up and downhill in the snow up to my hips. 
in South Georgia. I had a ton of homework last weekend. You could have knocked me over with a feather. All those are hyperboles, you see, that we use all the time. Well, he's older than the hills. Here's one that you probably are thinking right now. How long is this preacher going to keep on talking? We've been waiting in eternity for him to finish. Well, sometimes I believe that Jesus used hyperbole. He used exaggeration in order to get people to listen. It was a shock effect, but it was more than a shock effect. It was to get people focused on something that was very important. Get this, folks. Would I even be preaching this message if it weren't for the fact that Jesus said what he said in an outrageous way? Think about it. So in this passage, Jesus is talking about what it takes to live the Christian life, and there are three things in particular that I want you to note that, he, that I believe he means when he says, in order to follow me, you have to hate the people that you, you normally love the most. First of all, he meant that there's more to the Christian life than just showing up with the crowd. Again, verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, the large crowds, he says, now get this, he's talking to a large crowd who's following him. And we know that this crowd had many thousands of people. We don't know exactly the number, but he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, you see, he's targeting the crowds. Human nature has always been about the crowds. In church, we're all about the crowds. We keep tabs of how many come to worship, and we need to. How many people come to Sunday school, and we need to. How many people enroll in small groups, and we need to. But we also need to guard against thinking that where the crowd is, there must be discipleship going on. Did you know that the average size church in the United States of America, the, the, the average size church, Christian church in the United States is somewhere between 80 and 100 members. That's the average church size. You say, man, a lot. There's some churches with 30,000 and then there's some churches with 10 or 20, and, and, but the average is between 80 and 100. So the vast majority of churches in the United States, are small churches. I will go so far as to say that our nation's backbone hinges on those small churches. They mean so much to community, especially in rural areas, but everywhere they do. But get this. While the majority of churches in America are, between, are, are less than 100, and the average church is between 80 and 100 members, a strong majority of Christians in America go to a megachurch. Now, don't hear me shooting down megachurches. They have a place. They're reaching a lot of people. They do a lot of tremendous things. But I want you to understand something. If the average church is 80 to 100, and yet a strong majority of Christians in America go to a megachurch, what is that saying to us? Outside of that America loves to follow the crowd. And let me also tell you that in the majority of mega churches, one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons people flock to those is because they can sneak in there in the dark 
and they can get their worship fix for about 55 minutes and they can sneak out in the dark and head home and nobody's going to bother them. And if they're fortunate enough to have their preacher up on a video screen, he won't even call because he's on a video screen. Now again, don't, don't hear me knocking those churches. They have a place. They reach a lot of people. They do a lot of good. You and I both have been the recipients of blessings that a lot of those churches have put on. But I'm simply saying that discipleship is not about following the crowds. Christian life is more than showing up with the crowd. And that's one of the things Jesus is talking about when he used this hyperbole. Second, he meant that while becoming a Christian is free, being a Christian, that is following Christ, is costly. Verse 28, suppose... One of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete? It's going to be costly. Becoming a Christian is free and it is simple and it is easy. We believe that Jesus, who is God, died on the cross in our place for our sins and rose from the dead. And we receive him as our Savior and Lord, placing our trust in him. That that's, that's simple and easy. We don't have to pay anything. We don't have to obey a certain number of commands. It's just a matter of believing in Jesus and receiving him in a relationship. That's simple and easy. That's probably the easiest part of the whole Christian experience. But living the Christian life, being a Christian, is something that is costly. It is not simple. It is never meant to be easy. Number three, by this exaggerated statement that we should hate our family in order to follow Jesus, he meant that our relationship with him, our relationship with Christ must be a priority in our lives. I see this, I see this principle going down the tubes. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things that you worry about will be added unto you. In other words, they will be taken care of. But only if you seek first the kingdom of heaven. Nowadays, instead of seek first the kingdom of heaven, our motto, our slogan, our modus operandi is, if I don't have anything better to do, if my companion and I don't have anything better to do, if my kids don't have anything better to do, if my family doesn't have something going on, then and only then will I do something that has anything remotely to do with Christ. Say it ain't so. You know it's true, and I know it's true. And, and all the while, we think Jesus is going to bend to our expectations and our desires. And all the while, Jesus is saying, I won't bend to your expectations. I still require you to put me first. I still want my relationship with you to be a priority. Verse 33 of Luke 14, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, cannot be my disciple. What did Jesus mean when he said hate unless you hate 
mom and dad, your parents, your children, your spouse. You cannot be my disciple. We see something of the same thing in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, Malachi quotes God as saying, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Did he hate Esau? I think again, it's hyperbole. I, I think the intended meaning here, and I don't, I don't know why certain translations don't let us know, at least in parenthetically or in a footnote, what the intended meaning is. I don't get that. But here's what I believe he said. Jacob have I chosen. I chose him instead of choosing Esau. I preferred him over Esau. It's not something of, of literally hating Esau. It's a figure of speech. So when Jesus said that in order to truly follow him, we, we must hate the people we love, he really means that we are to love Jesus more than we love anything or anyone else. And yes, that means loving him more than we love our spouse, our parents, our children. We are to love our families and our friends to a lesser degree than we love the Lord. That doesn't mean that we are not to love our family. It doesn't mean that our love for our family is not going to be great. It simply means that it will not be, nor should it be, as much as our love for Christ. And as bad as I intended not to, I'm already watching the Olympics. I swore I was not going to. I really don't want to watch the Olympics. It wears me out. I don't want to see it. But NBC, the network that is broadcasting the Olympics this year, they have several channels. If you're on cable or direct TV or dish, you know that they've got, I don't know, five or six channels. And one of those channels, one of those channels is, a, is a, an NBC Universal channel that has all of their cameras up at one time and you can choose which one you want to see and you can highlight it, click on it, and it'll put it on the big screen. So you are in control of what you want to see. And lo and behold, as I was channel surfing yesterday evening, I come up on that channel, that NBC Universal Olympics channel, and lo and behold, among the eight different screens they had on the screen, there was America's pastime. Table tennis. Table tennis is America's pastime. It's not baseball. Ping pong ought to be the world's most favorite sport. It ought to. They had ping pong on there. Two girls, teenage girls, playing ping pong. And I looked over to Amanda and I said, thank you, Lord. And she says, thank you, Lord, for what? I said, thank you, Lord, that I ain't playing one of those girls. Man. And so I watched a documentary on... Table Tennis Olympians. Every table tennis player who's in the Olympics for at least the past two years has spent, on average, every day, six hours just playing ping pong. Six hours a day just playing ping pong. On top of that, they have at least another two to four hours on average every day of leg drills. See, I thought only football players did that. Ping pong players have to do that. 
And they have to do exercise that deal with their focus, improving their focus. Which, which means that on average, in order to be a table tennis Olympian, they have to put in somewhere between 8 and 12 hours on average every day, either playing ping pong or doing exercises that improve their ping pong playing. I say all this to say they have to sacrifice in order to do what to them is important. John Hughes pointed this out in our Sunday school class the other day. And what Jesus is saying is exactly that. If you want to follow me, this this is not some sort of cotton candy thing. This is not some kind of just walk through the park. It requires sacrifice. Sacrifice that's so great that it is as if you hate everything else. Is that you? Are you there? Oh, no, don't, don't think that. Don't think that. I know what you're thinking. You think, well, he doesn't really want us to be there. Look up here. He really wants you to be there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to take seriously what you have seriously said to us. And you were serious about it because you had to use some unorthodox language to get it across to us. You want our relationship with you to be front and center. And Lord, just to be honest, we have fallen short of that. Lord, as we enter this invitation, I pray that we would make a commitment to stop falling short in putting you first. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this invitation, if you're here and you've never invited Christ to be your Savior, that initial beginning of a relationship with him, I invite you to come. Let us pray with you. We can help you to invite Christ into your life. If you're already a Christian, you know, seated right where you are, whether or not what Jesus said is true for you. The question is, what will you do about it beginning this morning? That's the question. Let's stand and let's sing.